our family and our church, and I just like the vibe. I like who we are, and so, I don't know, do you guys feel like that sometimes? And so it, it's, it's not a selfish thing. It's just um, a God thing, maybe. Um, so I love you guys. So It's not a drunk moment. It's, I, I love you guys. Um, uh, okay. Uh, on that note, um, we're in, we're a quarter of the way through the book of John. We're doing a study through John, kind of moving through it. And the fun thing about this morning is I get to do what is more natural to me. And, and that's, I'm hopelessly big picture. Hopelessly, hopelessly, hopelessly big picture. And when we get into scripture, a lot of times what we really try to do is, is get into a verse and look at some words and try and unpack that and see what those words mean. Or we'll get into a section and we'll try and unpack the background uh, historically or something like that so that we can gain better insight on what's going on in that passage. What we rarely do is back up all the way and try and gain this, this huge big picture view that, that shows us a little bit of the intentionality either of the main person in that narrative or the writer of the narrative. Um, kind of really seeing the forest instead of the trees. Does that make sense? And so this morning we're kind of going to do a chapter and a half in a different kind of way. But we're in John. It's the end of chapter 4 and, and all of chapter 5. And it's basically two stories. And I'm not going to read them all. I'm just going to give you a, a little synopsis and then maybe one verse from each. But the first story is just Jesus healing the official son. And so he ends up kind of traveling around. And a guy comes to him and his son is sick, and Jesus ends up proclaiming this and then healing the son through a distance just by, by kind of deciding that the son should be healed. But Jesus says this in verse 48 of chapter 4, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. And so the rest of the story goes on and talks about how it's really fascinating that this boy was healed. Uh, they kind of pieced it together at the same time that Jesus proclaimed those words. And then it moves on, and the next part of the story is at the pool of Bethesda or Bethsaida, and it's, it's Jesus coming up, and kind of culturally what's going on here is there's a lot of people that are sick. And they wait around, and when the water is kind of disturbed, um, it's, it's a religious belief at the time that if you can get into the water, they're healing waters. And Jesus walks up on this guy and says, do you want to be well? And the guy says, yeah, I want to be well, but I don't have anyone to carry me down there. I'm just kind of all alone. Uh, I'm here with my need, but I can't go anywhere with it. I mean, I'm doing the best I can. And Jesus says to this guy, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. The guy picks up his mat, walks away, and as soon as he kind of gets out of that area, he runs into a bunch of the religious leaders, kind of the Pharisees, and the first thing they say to him, and this is so typical, right? Uh, they don't say, wow, miraculous, you're healed, or isn't that cool, or praise God. The first thing they say is, what are you doing carrying your mat? It is the Sabbath. It is God's time. What are you doing this for? You're wrong, right? I mean, they're just completely out of sync. God just did something 
that's just amazing. They should be like celebrating God, praising God, and instead they're trying to defend God by saying that you, you low creature, are like carrying your mat. How dare you? You know, I mean, has there ever been a sinner like that, right? Carrying his mat on Sabbath. And so what ends up happening is the guy uh, says, geez, I, I don't know who helped help me because kind of the religious leaders are on a, a witch hunt. The Inquisition is coming. Who, who did this? We want to find them because they're guilty. And what ends up happening is he finds out it was Jesus, tells them, and in the back half, half of chapter 5, we see Jesus kind of talking to these religious leaders and in some sense scolding them and teaching them because they don't really get it. They don't really get it. Okay, so let's just stop there for now. I want to pray real quick, and then we'll kind of back way up and take a look at this. But let's pray. <clears throat> Father, may you simply just become bigger in this time. And may we become smaller in this time. And may our relationship with you, not our ideas, not our conceptions, not our categories, not our own desires, but would our relationship with you thrive and grow as you are exalted, as we are humbled. And let us just see the, the magnitude and the beauty and the splendor of your grace that you've poured out through Jesus Christ. And let's pray that in his name. Amen. Um, so the, the kind of forest principle here, back and way up, is just this, that John wrote this gospel. And when you write something, you have a purpose in mind. Anything you write, you know, unless it's for school where you're just like, I'm writing, I'm writing, and then I'm going to increase the font and turn it in. You know, like, and you're not even thinking about it. But when you write something you care about, you're putting a message down, there's, there's, inten there's intentionality behind it. Does that make sense? Okay. And so John is writing this gospel... And there's authorial intent. Now, sometimes we lose that intentionality in what he's doing as he's laying it down when we get really focused in tight on some verses. And part of the reason is, is when we get really focused in, we slow way down. And if I slowed down, like, far enough to where I'm saying one word a day, you might totally miss the sentence and begin to just fixate on individual words. So if I took seven days and gave you seven words... Um, anyone watch American Idol? Like, it was really funny. I was watching it the other day, and this really bothered me, but the one gal, Kara, is it Kara? She said, I got six words for you, and then she gave eight words. Like, I just, I couldn't get over that the rest of the night. I'm like, you know. <laughs> but if I really was going to give you seven words, and only seven words, and I was going to give you a different word a day, okay, or one per month, even better, right? then pretty soon what you're going to do is you're just going to begin to fixate on and. Well, and comes from the Anglo-Saxon, you know, and, and you're going to kind of just fixate on that. And then a month later, you're like, um, swam. Well, swimming really means... And what happens is you no longer see the sentence or put that together, okay? So when we read Scripture sometimes, what we do is we slow down so much that we lose that context. The original hearers of this, most people wouldn't have been able to read it themselves, they would have had to hear it being read by somebody. Uh, we take for granted this whole idea of silent reading that we ourselves individually read and kind of read in our head. But in that culture, they would have heard it, and it would have 
it would have happened probably in one fell swoop. When the book of John is being read, it's read from beginning all the way to the end. It's fascinating. In uh, Nehemiah, when you hear about Ezra, the, the priest, kind of standing up after all these Israelites have come back from captivity, and he kind of stands up and he takes out the Torah, like the, the law, and he sits there and reads the thing, and people stand, and he reads it, and it takes like all day. All day. And if you've read like the Torah, I mean, this is where we're talking genealogies and you know, the stuff we skip and all. I mean, we don't have any patience for a lot of it. And he reads it all day long, and they're listening, and they're so moved by it that they're weeping, and they're repenting, and they're praying, and they're, they're reevaluating their life and stuff like this. Well, John would have probably been read in kind of one fell swoop like this. And sometimes we have to back up and say, you know what? What's the flow that at the normal speed that I'm missing? And if we look at this, we see in chapter 2, Jesus comes and turns water into wine, his first miracle. And he's doing this juxtaposition of the old law and kind of the new, the new Testament, the new law, and how these two things are different. And the new wine is better than the old kind of ceremonial things. And Jesus comes and he's beginning to give the message, right? And then he goes and clears the temple. I mean, he's... He's all rowdy and clears the temple and just says, no, this isn't how it's supposed to be. All people are supposed to come. My, my, my house is supposed to be called a house of prayer for all nations, and it's not a man-centered thing. And, and let me just clear this out and try and purify it so that it has the original kind of intent about us having a relationship with God and that that's the, the focus and the priority. So he clears the temple, and then they get mad at him. He says, see this temple, destroy it, and in three days I'll... I'll I'll raise it up again. And what he's basically saying is, you're going to find God through me now. It's not traveling like pilgrims to Jerusalem, and then that's where you find God because the presence of God is there. I'm now going to be that temple, the place that you come to find God. And so he clears the temple. Then we go on, and in John chapter 3, we see him meeting with Nicodemus, and he's teaching Nicodemus. And we talked about John 3.16, this famous verse, and that kind of right around it is the whole imagery of the snake in the Old Testament that's raised on a pole because the people were grumbling. They thought life was all about them. And so God sends this kind of plague to kind of like wake them up. You know, when you, uh, if you've got kids, like if they don't take a nap, you know, and by the end of the day, they're just, they are whiners. Like their identity is, is co-equal. I mean, it's just they're whiners. And you kind of have to shake them out of it. Not literally, right? But like... Um, distract them, refocus them, even discipline them, whatever, and just say, you, you just got to stop, pivot, go a different direction. God sends this plague to kind of wake up his people, and he says, but I'm also sending kind of how you're saved. Here's this snake on this bronze pole. You look at it, and the snakes won't bite you. And remember we talked about how we always focus on the, the immediate need, the felt need, the primary need. And a lot of what God does in our lives is he gives us a secondary solution. He doesn't fix our circumstances right then and there. He doesn't fix the circumstances we think are the real problem. God, get these snakes away. God, take away what's afflicting me. God sends a secondary solution and says, in the midst of that, you look to me and I will deliver you and take care of you. And we're always wrestling and fighting with God fix the primary, when we need to submit to and realize he's actually sending 
our help and the secondary solution. And Jesus likens himself to this snake on the bronze pole. He says, God is sending me. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will be saved, will have eternal life, will not die. Okay? That, it's a second, that he is that secondary solution to save us and give us eternal life. So Jesus is talking with Nicodemus and he's again saying the old system of the law that you have to just focus on this righteousness has been replaced with the better solution of looking to Christ and letting God give you eternal life. And in that whole process where you're now following Christ, everything kind of falls into place. You want to please that which you love. You want to enjoy that which you love. You want that to kind of fit when we really realize that that's our Savior, that that's the one that's dying for us, that that's where we look, that that's who we follow. We get excited about following that. And the kind of righteousness stuff, the law, like behaving, morality, whatever, kind of comes secondarily. Those circumstances change in our life. Our desires change. So a part of that, Jesus was saying, because of everything revolving that way, changing out 180 degrees, being recycled, so to speak, it's like you're being born again. So this famous phrase comes with Nicodemus. It's, you're, you're being born again. Not a physical birth, but you are actually being born brand new. Everything starts over. Everything's turned over. Everything's flipped over as you are now reborn with this kind of new spiritual identity connecting with God through Jesus Christ. Huge teaching. So then Jesus leaves and uh, we see in chapter 4 he meets this woman at the well. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks, the Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan woman is the kind of person that you would just normally pass by. Um, let me just side note here. I, I honestly believe that there's too many weird Christians in this world. Okay? I, I, it's like one of my deeply, uh, deepest held beliefs. There's too many weird Christians in this world. And I think we're weird because we've built this Christian bubble subculture and we think that we're actually living in the world, yet we've insulated us with all these things that are comfortable, that we like, that we enjoy, that are our own kind of deal. And, and we, we listen to Christian radio. And I, my second belief is that I don't think Jesus would have listened to Christian music because it's not that good. Um, it's, it's a quality issue, right? But we listen to Christian radio and we go to the Christian bookstore and we, we just circle ourselves with this kind of Christian bubble and we're driving around in America, so we think we're in the world. But we've become one step removed from it. And so Jesus' disciples, same kind of a thing. They were identified in their own little kind of um, Judean bubble. And they wouldn't have talked to this woman at the well. Because they were one step removed. And when you're one step removed from somebody, and there's a cultural kind of thing, or an awkwardness there, you usually just pass on by. So if we're going to be in the world, which means um, it's natural enough, normal enough, we have enough real interactions, authentic interactions with the people in our world that we speak their language, we understand how they see the world, their paradigms, we can have a conversation with direct communications. It's not weird, stumble, awkward. It's just normal conversation. If it's that comfortable, us in the world, then when we walk up on that person, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Did you catch the Boston game yesterday? Like, 
What, what gives? You know, why are you out here in the middle of the day? You know, I, I mean, it's just natural. But when we begin to isolate ourselves and, and it begins to get a little bit awkward, we don't understand language. It's like a, a, a language gap. What's the word for that? Like, a, what was it? Yeah, it's a barrier, but um, it's, I think there's like a word for when you don't speak the same language, but it's, uh, it's a language difference. So it's like going overseas or going somewhere else, and it's that forced communication. And then what happens? You only talk to those people when you need something. Walk into the Italian-like store. I, bread, you know. Give me, you know, whatever it is. No, I'm not Italian, but I need something, so I'm going to try and bridge that gap and get that from you. Or you just bothered me enough to where I have enough desire um, to tell you kind of what I think or what I feel because my opinions have kind of reached a certain point. But if I really want to relax, if I really want to be in my comfort zone, if I really want to just unwind, I'm not going to talk to that Italian guy. I'm going to go find another American tourist and just chill. We chill with Christians way too much. And we treat the rest of the people in Bend, Central Oregon, America, as if they're the awkward people that really drain us because there's a language barrier. Okay? Um, um, step back into where we're at. But um, So Jesus comes up, and the beauty of it is just how naturally he talks to this woman. He, he just walks right up and, I mean, just dives right in. No fear whatsoever. Starts talking to her. And the whole outcome of that story, again, is this thing. She's trying to argue this point of where are we supposed to worship? Who's right? Two religions competing. Is it this mountain or is it this mountain? And, and kind of judge in this political dispute almost. And Jesus says it's the wrong question. From now on, you're going to worship the Father in spirit and, tr and in truth. It's, it's again, it's this born-again thing. It's your soul being changed. It's the ability through Jesus Christ to come directly in the presence of God in his throne room. And it's in a spiritual way. It's not which mountain or which temple. It's just coming and directly connecting with God in truth and, and in spirit. And it's, it's this whole thing. It's all changing again. And then we come to these two stories where... It's basically just about miracles. Jesus does this miracle, then Jesus does that miracle, and then he starts to talk to the Pharisees, and the whole argument is about what? It's about authority. It's about authority. So let's backtrack just a little bit. Jesus starts here with a miracle, water and wine, the old and the new, then he goes to the temple, and he really takes this authority thing and says, I am going to cleanse it. And it's about the old and the new again and about who he is. And then he moves on and it's Nicodemus and it's got to be born again. It's your soul. It's God quickening you to new life, right? Because God so loves the world that he sent me. And then you move on and you get this amazing interaction where Jesus is just trying to reach people because he loves people and he speaks their language and, and he's talking with this woman at the well and saying, it's not about what you think it is. It's about God and it's about worshiping him through me. And there's a truth there. There's an authenticity there. And it's a spiritual thing. And then he comes and he does a miracle. And then he comes and he does a miracle. And then he says to the Pharisees, you just don't get it. You don't get it. I and the Father are one. And I did this on the Sabbath because my Father has never stopped working. 
He's in control of the universe. The responsibility of everything rests on him. He's never walked away from that. And in the same token, the responsibility for people and for this world and all that, it remains on me as well. And so I never stop working. And he's talking about authority. John, in writing this, is trying to get us to understand something very, very profound. And that's just that Jesus is not a good guy that helps people out. Jesus is not just a really smart guy that gets religion. Jesus is the authority. Meaning everything begins and ends with him. Okay. The, uh, the whole thing of authorial intent is kind of interesting. Like, I had to call my wife today and tell her, to, we don't have G.I. Joes at home. I have four daughters. Um, but I said, bring me like a little figurine or doll or something, right? The way authorial intent works is this. It's really hard for us to enter into stories. If I read someone else's love letter, I don't have the same emotions that the writer of that love letter had, right? If, the, the, if I'm watching someone jump rope, you ever seen the double dutch kind of thing? If I'm watching someone jump rope, it's totally different than the person that's twirling it and the person that's in the middle of the rope jumping. So that first person experience or intention is so much different than my third person experience. Does that make sense? That's why in the movie Dead Poets Society, like, you know, Robin Williams has him stand on his desk. And he's like, hey, get out of your rut and look at things from a new perspective because you need to grease the wheels of your mind so that you can kind of get stuff. Because you're, you've kind of gotten into this rut by your age, just seeing life in this kind of very plastic way. Kids, the reason I have this doll, kids get this, right? I mean, you watch any kid playing with a doll or a G.I. Joe or whatever, and they are projecting themselves onto this doll, making it do whatever they want, you know? Um, my daughters are all into this, like, nursing their babies, you know? Or, like, making their dolls, like, nurse babies and stuff, right? And they're, they're kind of, like, living vicariously through this. That's what they're playing. They're... They're projecting onto, they're identifying with the character, okay? And they're living through it, and they understand what life would be like for this, you know, thing to do this stuff, right? Um, we have a lot of naked babies at home, so at least this one's dressed. Um, but what I'm, what I'm basically getting at with this is when we get older, we don't know how to role play so well. We lose the, the wonder and the creativity and the freedom of, of mind, the, the dreaming to be able to role play and project ourselves onto something. And if we really want to get what John is trying to give us here, this, this intentionality that he's got, we have to insert ourselves into John almost and say, what is really making John tick that for basically three chapters of his gospel, he, he keeps hammering from different ways. He's hammering this thing. It matters to him as the writer of this gospel. This is his chief subject. He really wants you to hear him. He's kind of the guy that's saying it a bunch of different ways, and you're like moving on, on already, and, he's, and he keeps circling around and saying the same thing over and over and hitting the table and listen to me. I don't think you're listening to me. And he brings you back and he's, he's kind of just going over and over this and saying, Jesus is the authority and he has come to usher in a new reality. 
a new one versus the old one where it is a spiritual revolution of your soul. It is huge. And we got we got to somehow just get in there and taste it and smell it and touch it and identify with it and role play with it and get it and go, "Oh, whoa. You mean you're really saying that Jesus Christ is not just somebody over there that I'm going to try and figure out what to do with him or list whatever, but it's just kind of a natural thing. It's like this is totally different. He's up there and he's in authority. Everything comes to a grinding halt. And I look at him and say, okay, what do you want? Yes, Lord. Teach me. I'm listening. I will do. I will become. I will submit. There's a... There's a Kip's going to do a little weird um, techno thing on us here that's new, but um, he's actually really nerding out back there. Um, he's doing this from his iPod Touch. So, ooh, yeah, it's, it's kind of funky. Uh, but listen, listen, listen to what happens here. We're trying to take care of ourselves. I haven't said it for a while, but life is relentlessly difficult. And we know that by experience. Life is messy. Life is relentlessly difficult. So we're trying to deal with that. And then we come to Jesus, we come to God, and we're like, maybe you can help us deal with that. First, presenting problems here, the primary things, right? Maybe, God, you can help us deal with that. And what begins to happen out of this is it's all about us and our sets of circumstances, and we become the center of our own little universe. That's just human nature. It's what we do. What we're supposed to have with God is a relationship where we're here, and God is here, and this looks like a relationship. Okay? There's... There's reciprocal action, there's a give and take, there's relationship. And our proximity or position to him is one of a subject. Christ is king. We're subject to that authority. And when we're subject to that authority, he's the good shepherd, he is the caretaker. He is the caretaker of our lives. Now, if we don't subject ourselves to his authority, it's an either or, right? We're in rebellion to that authority. We're not putting ourselves under, therefore we're denying that authority. We're coming outside of it and we're going to self-determine. We're going to have sovereignty in our own life of who we are and what we do. We're not subject. Now, when someone is a king and has that authority and you don't subject yourself to it, it's rebellion. What happens, what does a king do when there's rebellion? Is he able to then bless and affirm? He disciplines. When my daughters don't listen to me, I don't ignore it. It is not in my nature. I am their dad. Um, these things aren't up for discussion, right? 
when they rebel against my authority, I'm not saying like harsh discipline, I'm saying correction. No, 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 that's not how this works. And if you, if I allow that to continue, it will damage who you are. I have to discipline you. I have to correct you. Because this relationship is important for you to be nurtured, for you to get what you need, for you to learn humility, and for me to be able to take care of you and speak into your life. When we do this business here, we think, hey, I'm a good person. I mean, I'm just trying to get along in life. I mean, my life is tough. I'm just trying to win. I, I got kids. I got a family. I got job. I got health issues. I got whatever. Like, you can't tell me I'm rebellious or sinful or bad. Like, I'm just trying to get along here. And it's difficult and it's messy, but it doesn't matter. If you're doing it in and of yourself, you're not fulfilling your responsibility or your obligation to God or to Jesus as Lord of your life. Um, I'm not in control. I don't make the rules. I don't set the agenda. I trust you. I'm willing to let you carry the responsibility. I'm not going to worry. I'm following. I'm going to submit myself to you. Jesus, you must become bigger. I must become smaller. And when we do that, we're able to be affirmed by this good shepherd that says, yes, I, I, I am faithful. You put your faith in me, I will show myself to be faithful. I will handle that faith well and show you and prove to you and help you learn and I'll nurture your ability to continue to trust me. Because this is hard, isn't it? To initially trust, we've got the, the snakes biting at the ankles and we're going to look at like a bronze serpent on a pole or whatever. Whoa! That's a difficult choice to make. We have to trust. But this whole thing starts to go where when we seek him, we will find him. When we ask, we will receive. And this is what a relationship looks like. Does that make sense? Why does that not happen easier? Why, why is it not easier for that to happen? Let's turn real quickly to John chapter 5. just read a little bit of this, but it's Jesus kind of at the end of John chapter 5 having this go-round with these Pharisees and he's talking about, look, I'm trying to tell you who I am and every time he tells them who he is, they just get more and more angry because he's claiming authority over them. Nobody likes it when someone comes in or the new kid comes in, takes away your position on the football team. You know, you just transferred in, it's my senior year and you're going to take the quarterback position. I hate you. Okay? That's what Jesus is doing. He's coming in. They're the authority. What they say goes. Now all of a sudden, Jesus, new kid on the block, is saying, no, I'm the authority over you. They don't like it. And so here's something really interesting he says in verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Yet these are the scriptures that testify about me, and you refuse to come to me to have life. So you religious leaders, are, you got your nose in the book, and you're, you're studying the words, but you're not getting the meaning or the context, not putting the sentence together. And if you were putting the sentence together, you'd realize that God is saying in the Old Testament, there's one coming who God is going to send that will have authority. And Jesus says, you study these things, and you think it makes you great Christians. 
Yet this is what says, I have authority. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. What an indictment, right? They're reading the scriptures about a God who is love, and they miss the love part. Again, they're not getting the sentence. They're only getting words, right? I know you, and I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. What does he mean by that? If the new kid to school comes and just wants to play on special teams and will kind of play along with your game, you get really excited. Ah, the team's grown. What a cool guy. Yeah, do you know Johnny from Nebraska? What a stud. You know, he's going to be on special teams. But if someone comes and is over you, you don't accept it. Why? Because it challenges your authority. If someone's going to take the quarterback position, whoa, Johnny from Nebraska, I hate him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? This is where we're going to camp for just a little bit. We are a herd creature. The Bible likens us to sheep, and it's not a compliment, right? We like to gather together in little tribes, and then we self-reinforce in those tribes. If you tell me I'm a good person, I'll tell you you're a good person. We can begin to kind of create these collective tribal tendencies or rituals. And then that will become our identity. And then we have identity, which makes me feel cool. And it's better than the stragglers that don't have an identity. You know, they don't have a tribe. And what a wonderful thing. And so we, we begin to, like, affirm each other. And we like this structure we're building up. And then somebody, this dissenting voice comes from the outside and challenges the cultural norms of our tribe. And we don't like it. It's not in our nature to like it. You know, it's fascinating with Socrates is the first one that you kind of see in secular history that gets killed for this. All the philosophers up to Socrates were really geeky guys like studying the moons and the stars and the predicting things and you know, what, what's the matter of substance? Is it air? Is it water? Is it this and that? They're kind of like scientists, right? And then, and then all of a sudden, Socrates comes along, and he's dealing with, like, how should we live? And, and what are ethics? And what are kind of, what's kind of the, the right life? Let's examine life. And by examining it, uh, you know, we kind of have to challenge some cultural norms. And all of a sudden, the tribe does what? They close ranks, and they say, that guy's causing problems for us in our cultural norms. Let's kill them. So what's funny is the Pharisees, who are supposed to speak for God, they're supposed to be the religious authorities, really just act like the Athenians, and they have a little tribe with cultural norms, and they've baptized it, made it look religious, feel religious, and they now have the lone dissenting voice that's a prophet, that's the king, that's, that's the son of God, and what they, do, they begin to realize that challenges us. How we live, what we've said, our credibility, because we'd have to backtrack, it, it, it challenges us. And we together, if we close ranks, can silence the dissenting voice, and they, just like the Athenians, kill Jesus. 
They treat him just like he's Socrates, like a moral philosopher, something that they don't like. Yet he was the authority. Didn't, you know, they didn't know that this is all part of God's plan, but amazing. So if you're a Christian today, I think uh, one of the first things you need to realize is, um, please, God, don't let me stop there with a label. Don't let me identify with a tribe and think that that's the sum total of what I'm supposed to do. Because there's a very real possibility that Jesus is still trying to save you. Jesus wants to save Christians. Uh, we had a guy out here that wrote a book called that. Jesus wants to save Christians. Here's the Christians of his day, and Jesus is trying desperately to get through to him and say, it's beyond your cultural values. It's about me and being reborn into this relationship that comes through me. I need to save you even though you think you're saved. They're reading the Bible, and Jesus says, you think you're saved. And then he talks to them about salvation. Isn't that haunting? Here's the thing. If you read Scripture without prayer and without humility, it only fuels your religiosity. If you read Scripture without prayer and without humility, you are a rigid individual, and it will only, that Scripture reading will only fuel your religiosity. If you read Scripture with humility and with prayer to try and hear from God, and you're saying, I will do whatever you say. I only want to be found with you, and I know I'm going to mess it up, God. I'm not going to get it right, but I'm teachable. I'll listen to your correction because I want to be subject to you. I want to be submissive. Have your way in my life. When we read Scripture that way, then the Scriptures point us. They point us to the authority of God in our life, and we now grow in our relationship with God. Powerful things can be used for good or for bad. Guns can be used for good or for bad. What Christians need to understand is that Scripture, a powerful thing, can lead you, listen to this, can lead you away from God or toward God. It doesn't mean that scriptures are bad. They're, they're inert. It's a message. It's how we read them, and it's our disposition to hearing them that will either, with this tool, take us away from God or towards God. That freaks me out. It means that prayer needs to be more than just, God, I've got pressing needs right now. I love during worship um, how Matt said, God, please this morning meet our needs. But more than that, may you be glorified this morning. We want to praise you. We have needs. But more than that, let us be in right relationship relationship with you, God. That's the beauty of worship. We weren't made to be alone. We weren't even made to just be in community. When we worship and you kind of get that satisfied feeling in your gut, like, oh, you know, I was miserable this morning when I got out of bed, but I'm so glad I'm here. It's because you're connecting with God in a way you were meant to, you were designed to, you were created in, in order to have that connection, that relationship. Absolutely created for it. So, Last little drawing, just um, hopefully, uh, hopefully map this out. I think 
the American Christian approach. I, I'm on this big kick that we need to just reform. I mean, if the church in, in America is broke, let's not aim at being an American church. Right? We need to be a little bit smarter about these things, maybe. Um, there's an old phrase that you, uh, you hit exactly... Your system is designed to give you exactly the results um, that you're getting. So if you're playing golf and the ball goes there, chances are that's where you were aiming. You didn't know it at the time, but guess what? That's where you're aiming. It's where the ball went. Your system is designed to give you exactly the results you're getting. Now, if, if you've been reading anything online lately or, or whatnot or in the papers, you know that Christianity in America is absolutely melting away. Absolutely, statistically, just evaporating at a huge rate from a sociological perspective. We're getting exactly the results that our system is designed to give us. Our system, frankly, in America, is to provide a church that satisfies people and gives them the, the feeling that they're able to meet their immediate needs. Not a bad thing. But we don't make a real habit of helping them grow in their ability to push these things away and focus on the secondary issues in their relationship with God to where they really grow in Christ-likeness. The American church is giving us exactly the results that it's designed to give us. So I'm, I'm on this big kick that we're, 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 we're silly if we don't take that into account and say, look, man, how do we go back to the New Testament and live a little bit more authentically because what God designed isn't broke. We've just monkeyed with it. In America, here's, here's what we tend to do. This is a salad bar. Okay? And you got the big salad bowl, and then you got carrots and tomatoes and celery and ranch, vinaigrette, cucumber, croutons, I don't know. That's our life. And we come to church, and we read our Bible, and we're like, I want to fit God into my life. I need that ingredient for my life to be complete. We treat God like he's the care of um, cucumbers. I need God in my life to, to fill out my set. It's like I've got, you know, one card short of a full house and I just need that other queen. And then I'll have a full house in my hand. And we act like religion and our relationship with God and Christianity is one part of our life. And we're always struggling because, man, this takes up time. Like the salad bowl might be watching TV, you know, and... This might be whatever, and, and we got all these different things, and we're like always struggling to fit God in. How does he fit into my life? I don't have time for this. The Bible reading and the prayer and the fellowship and the church is always trying to get me to go into small groups and, you know, and helping out with the homeless, whatever. Like, I, I don't have time for different ministries, you know. Um, it's hard. We all, by the way, we're all created for different ministries. So don't compare yourself to someone else. But the ministry that God's tugging at your heart for, you're, you're struggling to fit that in to your life. And the whole point is, is that there's supposed to be a radical revolution where when you were born again, this spiritual rebirth, that God becomes the salad bar. 
He is the center of your life. He's the authority. It all starts there. He's, he's in all of it. It's a, it's a radical paradigm shift that says, I've wiped everything clean, and I'm starting now, God, with you at the center. Help me add the different components working outward. And so now cucumbers becomes TV. And you know what? If I don't have time for it, great. I'll throw it away. You know, and this becomes this, and you know, hopefully this becomes like family because it's really important. But God, I am going to put you at the heart of it and then piece this thing together. That's the whole paradigm shift that's so revolutionary that Jesus is talking about. I am the authority. The new has come. I want to rebirth you into a spiritual realm where you are my disciple and you know God directly and it starts there. Everything starts there. And we pursue our lives as we grow, you know, age 13, then age 16, age 21, and we're piecing our lives together like that proverbial house with all the additions started out as a one-bedroom cottage, and then pretty soon it's a sprawling mansion with like 20 bedrooms and nothing makes sense. Like this hallway doesn't go anywhere and that bathroom only... You know what I mean? It's, there's no rhyme or reason to it because you've just pieced it together bit by bit by bit. And what Jesus is coming along and saying is that's a very natural human thing. Guess what? Bulldoze it. Don't add one more room and then call it God or call it faith or call it Christianity. Bulldoze the house... And let me begin to remake you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. I will revolutionize every component of your life when you bulldoze it and begin again putting me at the center. So John, this guy that we're supposed to like, identify with, what's John doing? John is pleading after spending all this time with Christ and then ministering for most of his adult life. He's pleading with people to not just pick a couple words or grab a couple principles for how to have a better whatever or how to whatever with your money or three steps to Christian happiness or five whatever. To, you know what I mean? Like the principle-driven self-help, whatever. John's like pleading with you and saying, I'm not trying to give you any principles. I'm pleading with you to revolutionize your life. Wipe it all clean. Start over. Put God at the center. Jesus is not just a moral teacher. He is the authority in your life. He's the king. Be subject to that. Be humble to that. Be teachable. And guess what? The biggest thing you're going to have to overcome is your desire to win the praise of other men. Your tribe, even if it's a religious Christian tribe, is going to be almost your biggest barrier because you're going to assume that if you harmonize with them, that you've completed the task. And guess what? John's teaching us. You still have to harmonize with God, and that's the end goal. Don't just get comfortable with the tribe and harmonize here. That's, that's wonderful. But that's not the beyond all. The real litmus test is, are you harmonizing with God? And if you don't know how to pray, if you've never prayed, if prayer freaks you out because this thing really all comes down to prayer, here's just the simple way to start. Just get along and, and say to God, I don't know how to pray. We've got to get it in our heads that God loves teachability. God loves humility. God loves it when we have enough faith in Him to entrust ourselves to Him and let Him lead us and teach us.
this morning when we walk out of here, if there's anything, just throw yourself at God. Try hard to make yourself teachable. Because it all begins with us being subject to God and putting Him at the center. Let's pray. Father, um, it's a good thing in Scripture it says that you're a patient God. Because it must be so frustrating at times to see us pursue a path and then acclimate to our tribe and the cultural norms and to then self-justify and puff ourselves up and to kind of remain in pride that we've reached the pinnacle, that we fit in, that we're part of the right crowd, that we're in authority or that we're the, the top notch of Christianity or whatever it is. But we're reading scripture in vain and we're not seeing the heartbeat going through it. That you're a God of love and we need to be filled with love and that you're a God that rules, that you're in authority and that we have to submit to that. And if we do, you will so wonderfully prove your faithfulness and take care of us. But if we don't, uh, we're out of your will. So Father, for this church, let us only take pride when we submit and when we're humble enough to say we're getting it wrong and that maybe next week we'll get it better and that you can somehow add up the difference. And just let us only take pride in humility and as strange as it sounds. Breed an authenticity into this group of people that is so deep and so profound that not only talking with you, but talking with outsiders becomes second nature. We pray this in Christ's name.